You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Marshall Gillespie to talk about an exciting advancement in HIV medicine. A third person has achieved long-term remission of HIV by means of a stem cell transplant. Marshall is the Regional Clinical Director for NICA AATC, an Associate Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases, and Director of the HIV Clinical Trials Unit at Weill Cornell Medicine. Thanks so much for being here, Marshall. It's great to be here, Mariana. So Marshall, let's get started. You and your colleagues at Weill Cornell played a key role in a late breaker presentation at the recent CORA conference that reported the case of a woman who has achieved long-term remission of HIV. Before getting into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about the prior two cases that were reported? Sure. The first case uh, was initially uh, called the Berlin patient, and then he later identified himself as Timothy Ray Brown. And this was reported initially at the CORI conference in 2008, then subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. He was an American man uh, living with HIV and actually living in Berlin. And uh, he developed a type of leukemia called AML, acute myelogenous leukemia, and he ultimately needed a bone marrow transplant to treat the leukemia. And he had a hematologist in Germany. He really had a clever idea, which was to uh, transplant with a specific type of, of bone marrow or stem cells that uh, are defective in a co-receptor that HIV uses to enter cells. So HIV binds to its target cells, primarily CD4 cells. It binds to some the CD4 receptor on those cells, but it requires a second receptor, a co-receptor, and it's usually something called CCR5. And it turns out that a small proportion of the population, probably less than 1% of people, primarily people of Northern European ancestry, are born with deletions in, these, in the, the genes, such that uh, it's called a 32 base pair deletion or delta 32, such that they have, um, essentially, they don't have this co-receptor for HIV and they're naturally resistant to HIV infection. So this hematologist in Berlin, again, came up with this idea that why don't we see if we could find those types of cells from a donor and transplant them into um, Mr. Brown. So they found a match and um, uh, Mr. Brown underwent high-dose chemotherapy, total body irradiation to treat the leukemia and it essentially wipes out his bone marrow and enables the transplanted cells to repopulate his bone marrow. So he actually needed two transplants. The first one didn't work. 
initially. And uh, the second one took and his um, uh, body began producing these cells resistant to HIV. He unfortunately developed something called graft versus host disease, which is where the uh, cells that are transplanted attack the person, the recipient's uh, cells in their body or their tissues. And it can be quite severe and require different treatments for it, immunosuppressive therapies. Uh, and uh, we'll come back to this uh, because the second case actually had graft versus host disease, but as we'll get to our patient did not. So that's one potential really important distinguishing factor. So um, this Berlin patient, Mr. Brown, stopped antiretroviral therapy right after the transplant. And then when he was followed very carefully over time, HIV could not be detected in his blood or various tissues that were, were sampled by biopsies. And this was over a period of 12 years. And so he was really thought to be the first person really cured of HIV. Unfortunately, he died of recurrent leukemia in 2020, which is quite a ways out from his initial leukemia diagnosis and, and quite unusual in and of itself. But he made a major contribution to science. And then the second case, I'll, I'll review more briefly, uh, so there's some similarities to the first case. And he was initially referred to as the London patient because that's where he was treated and then identified himself publicly as Adam uh, Castileo. And this was presented also at Croy in, at this time in 2019 and then published in the Lancet. He was, a four, is, a, was at the time a 40 year old uh, man who uh, originally from Venezuela, who was working as a sous chef in London. And then he uh, had Hodgkin's lymphoma and was in need of a stem cell transplant as well. So in 2016, he underwent uh, high-dose chemotherapy and then a transplant and also had these types of stem cells uh, transplanted that were defective in this Delta uh, CCR5 uh, co-receptor, this Delta 32 mutation. He also developed graft-versus-host disease. Uh, then he you know, recovered, stopped antiretroviral therapy, in this case, 16 months after the stem cell transplant. And then he's been in HIV remission, as far as we know, since then. But at the time of the last publication, it was uh, 30 months out. Uh, this was in 2020. So what was different about your case? Was there anything you know, unique about the strategy employed here? Yeah, so our case uh, was presented by Dr. Yvonne Bryson from UCLA. And the first author was uh, my colleague in hematology oncology, Dr. Jingmei Su. And I had the privilege to be involved in this uh, as well. And uh, our case uh, is a middle-aged woman who self-identifies as being of mixed race. Uh, she was diagnosed with acute HIV in 2013, so really initial infection, and began antiretroviral therapy in that setting. She subsequently was diagnosed with uh, AML, acute myelogenous leukemia, like the first case, Mr. Brown, in 2017 that was treated with uh, chemotherapy, and then she was deemed to be a candidate for a transplant. So in 2017, she underwent a uh, stem cell transplant, but really a different type of transplant. It's going to take me a couple minutes to explain this, so bear with me. Uh, it's called a haplocord transplant, and it was done as part of an NIH-funded trial called IMPACT P1107 that we participated in. And the idea behind the trial was to do a transplant, uh, to do transplants in people who need them, uh, who have HIV, with umbilical cord stem cells. So stem cells that really are derived from, from newborn babies. And uh, they're kept in a repository. And they have several hundred of these cord cells in a repository uh, at a company in California. And uh, particularly to match ones to an individual uh, who, you know, who would enroll in the study who have HIV and have a need clinically for a transplant because of leukemia or certain lymphomas. So why uh, umbilical cord cells? 
uh, they have some advantages. They don't have to be matched as rigorously to the recipient, which can be limiting uh, if someone doesn't have a, a suitable match, particularly when we're looking for the CCR5 deleted stem cells uh, and also finding a match, you know, the probability goes down significantly. And particularly for someone like our participant who identifies as being you know, a person of color. And another advantage of uh, these umbilical cord cells is that they're less likely to cause graft-versus-host disease, which can be sometimes very severe and even fatal. The disadvantage of them, however, is that they take a longer time to engraft, in other words, to populate the bone marrow and start producing blood cells. So it typically takes about a month for that to happen. And then the, the person who received the stem cell, the umbilical cord cells, uh, will have a prolonged period of uh, very low uh, white blood cells, specifically neutrophils, which fight off bacterial infections and other types of infections, and low platelet counts or thrombocytopenia, which can pose uh, risk of bleeding. So in order to uh, try to mitigate some of that risk, uh, our patient underwent uh, a different type of transplant from the other two people that talking about, and that she received these umbilical cord cells, which was novel, but also received stem cells from a relative that were partially matched to her. And those stem cells took over her bone marrow, you know, over a couple of weeks, and she began producing uh, some, you know, white blood cells and platelets sooner than it, uh, what would have occurred if she had only received the umbilical cord cells. So essentially this, uh, these haplocells, we call them from the relative, uh, served as a bridge in order to uh, enable her to have some initial recovery prior to the umbilical cord cells taking over, which they ultimately did and demonstrated by day 100 post-transplant, 100% of the cells circulating in her blood were derived from the umbilical cord cells. And in other words, had the CCR5 Delta 32 uh, mutations, which protected her against HIV. So uh, she did well, she did not have graft-versus-host disease as might be predicted by the fact that she got these umbilical cord cells. And, and this in and of itself uh, is a demonstration that this graft-versus-host disease was not an essential component of this long-term control of HIV post-transplant. It was thought to maybe play an important role in the first two cases, but clearly in our case, it was not an essential part of this, uh, this whole thing. And then she opted to stop antiretroviral therapy 37 months after the transplant. There was a little delay because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and concerns about uh, the safety of her coming back and forth to the careful monitoring that she needed. And she has been monitored you know, very carefully since then. What evidence do you have that she's achieved a long-term remission of HIV infection? Yeah, great question. So she's been followed now for 14 months after her treatment interruption and stopping her antiretroviral therapy. And every single time that she's had a viral load check by just a commercially available test, it's been less than 20 uh, copies per milliliter, which is you know, we call undetectable. Beyond that, she's had a number of other research assessments uh, of blood samples and even her bone marrow when it, a bone, bone marrow tests were done to monitor her leukemia. And she's had no detectable we call replication competent HIV in her bloodstream, which essentially is an assessment of the HIV reservoir where HIV you know, normally uh, lives in, in cells for very long periods of time. She's had what's called a single copy assay. So instead of going down to 20 copies per milliliter, like the commercially available test, this go down, goes down to one copy per milliliter and she was less than one uh, when that was checked uh, on multiple occasions. There was no 
genetic material, a DNA of the virus detected in her CD4 cells or bone marrow. And she actually lost her, both her cellular immune response to HIV and her antibodies to HIV, which we would anticipate would be both present if there were lingering HIV uh, in her body. So we've interpreted this as evidence of long-term control of HIV off of antiretroviral therapy. Also note her leukemia has been in remission, thankfully, for the last four and a half years. And is there any significance to the fact that she's a woman who has been living with HIV? Absolutely, Mariana, in my opinion. Women make up over half of people living with HIV worldwide and nearly a quarter of people with HIV in the United States. And historically, they've been underrepresented in clinical trials overall, and particularly uh, in trials uh, that are aimed at quote unquote cure or, or helping with sort of a piece of the puzzle that could ultimately lead to cure in a more widespread fashion. One estimate was that only 11% uh, of uh, clinical trial participants in these types of cure related studies are, are actually women. So we think it's really important that uh, a woman is represented among these three people now who've achieved long-term control of HIV from a, a stem cell cancer. This has been so fascinating to talk about. What are some top takeaways for providers as we begin to wrap up? Well, our case provides additional proof that transplanting these uh, Delta 32 CCR5, uh, Delta 32 stem cells can lead to long-term control or remission of HIV. We've also demonstrated that using these umbilical cord cells uh, you know, successful in this case and could potentially widen the availability of compatible stem cells by using these cells that are really essentially available off the shelf. There's a repository of them and you can identify ones that have this Delta 32 deletion and the fact that they don't have to be matched as quite as rigorously to the recipient means that there may be broader availability in terms of finding uh, suitable matches for people who need transplants. In this haplocord transplant, this sort of two types of, of cells that our patient received uh, was also shown to be successful in this setting. Just to be clear, Mariana, stem cell transplants would only be done in people who have an underlying condition like leukemia, um, because the upfront mortality can, from a transplant like this can be as high as 20%, and there can be other serious complications. But if someone does need one, doing this type of transplant could lead to remission of both the cancer and HIV as in our patient. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us and reviewing the details of this, you know, groundbreaking case. I personally can't wait to hear about the longer term results and we'll be keeping a close eye on any more news to come. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nikaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at NikaAETC.org. Stay safe and I'll see you next week for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.